Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Mickey Vong Thong from Hidden Omakase coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He is a passionate advocate for the Houston food scene. We follow him on Instagram at ThatGuyHouston. Matt Harris, welcome back to the show. How are you? Doing well, Daddy. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. I want to do something a little bit different for topic number one, because you and I attended the taping of the Top Chef Night Market that took place on the roof at Post Houston. It was a warm September night, uh, but the episode only aired last week, which means we are now allowed to talk about it. Uh, And as people who watch the show may have seen, 13 contestants each prepared a dish. They drew knives to determine which of five different cuisines would inspire their dish. Uh, I think they're Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, Indian. uh, What am I missing? No, maybe Vietnamese. Oh, Vietnamese. Yes. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Vietnamese. So five different cuisines. 13 contestants, one epic night. Matt, let me just throw it to you. What do you, what, what stands out to you from that night? What do you remember? Uh, What were your impressions of being part of making Top Chef? Uh, I, I definitely remember sweating. It was a warm night. It was a warm and humid night. Um, and, And, but beautiful. I mean, it, uh, that that setup at the post on the rooftop was pretty stunning, and uh, having the chance to watch the show now, and I think it 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 really mirrored what my thoughts were then. So um, that was uh, it was interesting. I was curious to see what was going to happen uh, after the editing, and I thought they captured it pretty well. <laughs> They're professionals, Daddy. They're professionals. They've made they've made a lot of TV over the years. That that is definitely true. Just to sort of give people a sense of the environment. I, I mean, it was it was it was limited to about a hundred people, and just so everyone knows, we we had to take a a COVID test a couple of days prior, as did everyone, and so that was a very important uh, protocol. They were. They were still uh, observing very strict uh, controls as far as that, even though you don't, you don't see anyone wearing a mask that we were, we were all masked right up until uh, it was time to go onto the set. You know, I, I mean, I think what stands out for me is just the focus of the filming obviously is on the judges. They were trailed by, by three cameras, you know, Padma had a, a wardrobe and makeup person that was sort of hovering around her between uh, when they were filming, keeping her looking fabulous as you would expect. Uh, but that there was, you know, there was plenty of other camera coverage. I mean, you, you eagle eyed viewers spot us for about three seconds on screen, but we were filmed, I don't know, probably three or four different times um, talking about dishes. And, and I know they did that for a number of other people. And, and so, you know, they, we were up there for probably two or three hours for a segment that lasts maybe 15 or 20 minutes on the show. So you, you can just imagine that there's hours and hours of footage that gets cut down. It's very, it's a very fast paced experience when you're watching it. 
and a, a very involved process when you're when you're living it. Yes, uh, it was about uh, uh, 60, 40 on waiting to go up to be filmed and actually being filmed. Absolutely. Um, I, I have some notes of a few favorite dishes and dishes that didn't land. Do you, do you remember what your, your favorites were from that night? Uh, I do, and, and I guess I should say I thought overall the food was very good for that environment for all the uh the 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 challenges presented the food was was very good i came away impressed and you know it's kind of behind the scenes they don't have sous chefs it's like what you see on tv at least for the part that we were there filming that's that's what it was um as far as favorites i thought the judges got it right the one that uh that stood out for me if, if uh, uh, I guess you, you don't really get a top four, but the other one was that rice cake dish uh, that Monique Faye Bessie did. And I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. My apologies. Yeah, no, I really liked the Vietnamese spring roll that Jackson made and Evelyn's uh, chicken salad, I thought was really tasty. And it was one of the first things we ate because she was kind of, uh, towards where you entered, and of course we recognized her, so we sought her out. Uh, she was she was the very first tent as you entered um, on the right, and and I just remember thinking like, oh, you know, this is like this is this is really tasty, and and it and even as we kind of went to all the various chefs, it really stood out. Uh, the one that didn't make the episode that I really liked was Sarah's like bon mi riff with the chicken liver and chicken heart you know i think there's just something about kind of growing up eating chopped chicken liver mostly around jewish holidays that 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 flavor profile really resonates with me and so didn't make didn't make the judges top three but was definitely on my list and then i have uh i do have my notes about least favorite alu style curry potato with rice that was sam's dish he went home and then the ashley's skewer uh, that was supposed to be sort of set you on my notes say no tingle so didn't have the right mala set you on style spices that you would expect for that dish and, and and i think the judges really got that right that 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 giant piece of radish was just sort of awkward to eat do you remember what what you, let, let me just ask you because horisan from kata told me that he really liked buddha's chicken samosa that was one of the bottom three dishes but uh do you remember trying it? Because I don't remember that fried puff pastry being gummy. I think we got a better version of it than the judges did. Uh, I do remember. Uh, it was towards the back. He was uh, next to Jackson Station with the spring roll. And I thought it was okay. We did have it early. So that may have helped with the, uh, with the texture. I do remember the chutney being a little sugary. I do not my recollection was it was not as bad as the judges made out to be. I, I think there was a little bit of um, a message in their commentary, which is when the guest chefs tell you not to do something, i.e. don't fry the samosa, you're probably better off not doing that thing, i.e. frying the samosa. 
Right. Yeah. Do do not ignore the advice given to you by Shif Kieran because she really knows what she's talking about, and you should listen to her. Um, and, and I and I appreciated his, his you know what what he said was that he did it because it reminded of his mom's cooking, and that's great. But if you're going to do that, you better absolutely nail it. And then the other one that that I remember was Luke Samosa, and that we actually because of the way that we kind of made our way through the, the different chefs and the different stations, we actually wound up talking to Luke a little bit and got to, I, I won't say we got to know him, but we got a little more of his background that he, he worked at Noma that he actually had been to Houston before and, and knows, uh, knows Johnny Rhodes who, uh, who ran Indigo for a long time and, and is now working on food fight farms. I mean, and Kaiser from Himalaya told me specifically, he really liked that that corn and crab samosa that Luke did and, and having watched the previous two episodes where he uh, was kind of struggling, it seems like it, you, you could not tell that uh, from our experience with his food, because that, that dish was very delicious. And he, he was very like cool and confident, just, you know, serving up those samosas. Uh, I did enjoy that. I think that probably with a little more time and maybe a little different circumstances that would have been, uh, my favorite dish. It showed showed some promise. We did have it towards the end, and uh, able to sit down and chat with him. And as you said, he was uh, mentioned Johnny, very complimentary of Johnny, and that was it. Was just a good way to end of the night. Uh, you know, it was it was interesting not being able to take pictures and kind of do some of the the normal you know social media stuff, but that was all part of it. So it was nice to actually watch the episode. It brought back, uh, just connected the dots a little bit of, okay, yes, that's how I remembered it. And that's how it was shown. Okay, great. And I, I don't think the, uh, you know, like I said, I think the judges got it right. That was, I think that was much easier decision than, than maybe the top three, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I actually talked to, to Corey from Mala Sichuan about uh, Jay's dish, which won and she, she was a little bit skeptical because it, it wasn't as Chinese as it maybe could have been. She used udon noodles, which is Japanese. She had the Korean melon. You know, she really, she kind of put her spin on it, which is what the judges really responded to. But, and it was like, it, again, that was one of the things we ate sort of towards the end. And even in the heat, you know, maybe a little bit of uh, palate fatigue, it, it did really stand out as, as a really, I, I wasn't surprised when I found out later that that it had won because it, it was a it was a very delicious bite no i agree i uh i i remember enjoying that quite a bit i thought it was a little brave to do noodles but uh what clicked for me was was when our uh, good friend and burger chef willet thing said he really liked that dish and i was like okay the, the, the this is this has got a chance Jay's chances just went up. Absolutely. All right. Anything else on this or should we uh, move on? No, just uh, I think as you mentioned, you know, Evelyn's on the show. Go Evelyn. Team Houston. And uh, look forward to seeing how the rest of it plays out. Excited that Top Chef finally came to Houston. And it's been a, been a good uh, sort of back-to-back for, uh, for Houston and Top Chef. So, Yeah, and I've been, I've been writing recaps. And, and this was the first episode that really felt like it could have only been filmed in Houston just from the 
diversity of the participating chefs and the way it showcased our different grocery stores and, and that setting at Post Houston with the, the view of the skyline that's so dramatic. It, it, really, it really felt connected to the city. And, and I know that, you know, you can kind of watch the, the preview clips and see they do a barbecue episode and they go to NASA and they do, they do one at the Museum of, of Natural Science. So we have a lot to look forward to, but, but it was, um, it was a, a memorable evening and, and something I really enjoyed being a very, very small part of. Indeed. Well said, Daddy. All right. Let us move on to topic number two. The James Beard Foundation has revealed the finalists for this year's James Beard Awards. Seven Houston chefs, bars, and restaurants are in the running to win the coveted medallions. They are Chris Williams of Lucille's for Outstanding Restaurateur, Ruben Ortega of Sochi for Outstanding Pastry Chef, Julep for Outstanding Bar Program, Hugo's for Outstanding Hospitality, and two nominees, or well, three people for Best Chef Texas, Kui Wong from Blood Brothers, and Christine Ha and Tony Nguyen from Sin Chow. Matt, I know we've talked about this a little bit already, but kind of looking at the going from the, the semifinalist to the finalist, maybe particularly in Best Chef Texas, I mean, how do you feel about Christine and Tony and, and Kui being the, the people who advance as opposed to uh, some of the other semifinalists like uh, Aaron Bludorn or Kaiser or Sylvia from Sylvia's Enchilada Kitchen? Let me first say congratulations to all the nominees and congratulations to all the finalists. I think it's uh, exciting. You know, Texas is, is it's, own category. I think I think you're onto something with with all that because you know I remember in 2019 the Beard Foundation came here to announce the finalists for that year's awards, and there were all these Houstonians nominated in all of these national categories, and for Best Chef Southwest, and none of them made it through from semifinalist to finalist, and it was this huge letdown because it was like, well, why did you, why did you come all this way? And you know we had this big dinner the night before and a, and a press conference for the city to be shut out. And so, you know, if nothing else, it's, it's just nice to see that Houstonians are getting that national level of respect. And of course, best chef Texas, we've, we've talked about that quite a bit since it was first announced in, in 2019, that, that Texas deserves to be treated as its own, region uh for the award just because there's so many big cities here and, and so much happening and you know i i read allison cook's sort of analysis and opinions on this process and, and certainly she has a lot to share as, as someone who's uh voted on the awards for a number of years but you know one of the things one of the points she made is that it's it's less about sort of years and years of excellence and more of the moment and, and honestly i think that's that's just fine with me you know, like I, I can't tell you that, you know, Sin Chow is going to be here in five or 10 years, but that's sort of the nature of the restaurant business. And it, and it recognizes the excellent work that Christine and Tony are doing now and the way they're kind of pushing cuisine forward. And, and certainly, you know, Kui and what the Blood Brothers have done in terms of Vietnamese and other Asian flavors that they've blended with Texas barbecue 
is really groundbreaking. And, and there's nobody else really, really doing that. And so, you know, of course they're worthy of recognition. And, and I think it'd be really exciting if a local won the first ever best chef Texas. And, and, you know, we won't, we won't find that out until the end of May, but you know, we're, we're a city on the rise and, and that ties into top chef being here and, and everything else. And, and it's completely appropriate in my opinion. I, I hope, you know, I hope Hugo's wins for outstanding hospitality because I, there are, there are a few places I've ever been that are, are more welcoming and more polished uh, from a service perspective than Hugo's is. Well, I think there's a lot to unpack there, Daddy, and uh, most, mostly agree. Um, I, I I'm, don't think uh, breaking any new ground here and saying that James Beards has, has a lot of challenges, not necessarily the, the forum to litigate all of those, but I do think that uh, making Texas its own category was something that they got right. As far as I'm concerned, I, I think all the finalists from Houston should win. So how about that? There you go. A tie. Probably not. Um, not likely. No, not likely. And, you know, you can see that the Beard Foundation has tweaked sort of who they want to include because Chris Williams, who only currently owns one restaurant with with more on the way, is nominated for Outstanding Restaurateur. I mean, usually, you know, those nominees are people with not just multiple restaurants, but but oftentimes in multiple cities. And and even if you look at kind of who he's up against, Chris Bianco, who the Pizzaola from uh, Phoenix, who's got, who's working on some projects in California, you know, Kevin Gillespie, who was on Top Chef and has a bunch of places in Atlanta. But if you look at Chris's contributions to the community, uh, especially at the start of the pandemic, establishing Lucille's 1913 and and all the good work that they've done and all the people he's fed and, and the, you know, the work he did for pop-ups, for bartenders, you who couldn't work and, and raising money for Southern smoke. I mean, it's, it's been really outstanding and, and he's should be considered a role model uh, for how restauranters operate nationally. And, and this recognition really acknowledges that. Uh, indeed. Uh, as, as we discussed, you know, that uh, uh, I am absolutely being in the beating the drum for, for Chris, for this award. I, I think what he's done is, as you say, is, is a model for something that would like to see more of in the restaurant community. And if you read the description for a restaurateur, you know, I, I think it fits very well with what Chris is doing and has done. It would not be inappropriate for him to win. Now, whether he, whether he actually wins or not, you know, that's not really up to us, but, but he would certainly be a deserving choice. Indeed. And I was very excited uh, that he was recognized as a finalist. Absolutely. All right. And then let us move on to topic number three, a little bit. uh, This will be a little bit briefer, I think. Pastry chef Jordi Roca, known for his work at three-star Michelin El Cellar de Can Roca in Girona, Spain, has partnered with the owners of MAD and BCN. Ignacio Torres and Luis Roger to bring his gelato shop 
which I think is rocambolesque, to Uptown Park. It's going to open uh, sometime next month. Now, let me just say that there was a, the Roca brothers, Jordy and his, his two brothers, came to Houston uh, for a couple of dinners in, I think, 2014. And I was lucky enough to attend one of them. And, and the food was incredible. I mean, El Cellar de Con Roca has the reputation for being one of the, the most innovative, most creative restaurants in the world. Part of that comes from Jordy's desserts that are, you know, these like very elevated conceptual sort of creations, but he sort of takes all that and turns it into soft serve gelato and popsicles and some other pastries, uh, some other sweets at a, at a much more affordable price point for this concept. So I, I really just couldn't be more excited that this is coming to Houston. And, and I, I suspect you share my enthusiasm. You put put me in that category. I mean, I know you travel. Have you have you been to El Cellar de Con Roca by any chance? I, I have not. I okay. Have not. Uh, I, I had some friends that uh, were there very recently, and uh, they were effusive in their praise. Yeah, maybe maybe just like, what are your expectations for this, and and kind of where do you see it sort of fitting in with? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems sort of silly to compare it to other ice cream shops, but I, I don't, I don't quite know. I mean, I don't, I don't quite know what to compare this to. Uh, I Dolce Nav is for me is, is the only one that uh, is likely in that category. So if they are anywhere near the level of Dolce Nav, then that's a big win for gelato fans, big win for Houston. Right. And of course, you know, there is a Van Leeuwen that opened in Uptown Park last year. And, and I guess it, it's just going to be a very, it's, it's going to be kind of a different craving, right? Because for the most part, Van Leeuwen's pretty conventional flavors. I mean, they're, they're well executed and, and very delicious in my opinion, but they, they don't have that, that kind of avant-garde, you know, Jordi Roca has been on chef's table. His most famous popsicle is, is shaped like his nose, you know, so they're, they're not doing that at, at Van Leeuwen as much as I have enjoyed their creation. So this is a, a more elevated experience, but, but it's still ice cream. I mean, there's only so much you can charge in my opinion. So we don't, we don't know that much about this, but I, I just can't wait to try it. Well, you know, you've arrived when you have your most famous dessert is an effigy to your nose. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. This podcast is sponsored by Green Street. Covering four city blocks in the heart of downtown Houston, Green Street offers access to dining, entertainment, and more. Green Street is an ideal location for dinner and drinks before or after attending a game downtown at one of its four restaurants, Guadalajara del Centro, The Palm, House of Blues, or M&S Seafood. Its proximity to Discovery Green also means Green Street is an ideal stop as part of a larger crawl through downtown's many attractions. Over the years, I've seen any number of concerts at House of Blues, but Green Street has other entertainment options as well. 
Pete's Dueling Piano Bar offers an energetic atmosphere for grabbing a drink, and friends can gather for a night of friendly competition at 810 Billiards and Bowling. Whatever the occasion, make Green Street your downtown destination of choice. Located at 1201 Fannin Street, go to greenstreetdowntown.com to see a full list of restaurant, bar, and entertainment destinations. Matt, for our Restaurant of the Week, I want to talk to you about Flora. This is Grant Cooper's new Mexican restaurant in the former Dunleavy space on Allen Parkway. Uh, As we've talked about quite a bit, Grant Cooper and his former business partner, Charles Clark, have went there separate ways. Grant now owns Copa and Gratify. He added Flora. Uh, He'll actually be on this podcast in another week or two to talk about what all the things he's got going on. But, uh, but let's start with Flora. I mean, you, you are kind of my co-host for Mexican food. You, you make regular visits to Mexico city. You grew up in Houston. So you, you understand sort of classic Tex-Mex and also uh, really cutting edge Mexican cuisine. So what were your, what were your impressions of, of Flora? They were good. You know, I had not visited that space when it was the Dunleavy. And, uh, you know, it was really warm and inviting. I thought the noise levels were, were great. We were able to enjoy e- each other's company and conversation. I, I felt like they are definitely putting the effort in. You know, we got a little bit of the, the red carpet treatment. And uh, that chocolate that they brought out that they're doing was something that really stuck with me. Nixtamalizing the corn. They've got an in-house Molino. They're making the, really making tortillas, not fake making. So there was a lot to like. I agree. And and yeah, I mean, we had uh, Joseph Prats, who is uh, one of Grant's partners, kind of guiding us through the menu. And, and he picked most of the dishes we ate. And I, I think what I was impressed with was the, just the thoughtfulness of, of all of these preparations you know, you, you pointed out that the tuna tostada, for example, is plated in the style of Contramar, which is one of the most prominent restaurants in Mexico City. And we asked Joseph about that. And he said, yes, you know, we, we kind of have that look, but it's but I, I've been to Contramar and, and, and our tuna tostada is different from their tuna tostada. And he rattled off three or four very specific ways. And so it, it was clear that it, it wasn't just like a they weren't trying to rip anybody off, right? It, it was a little bit of an homage and that, that there, a lot of thought had gone into to every preparation. And I just felt that way about the, the mole for the, the short rib that we tried and the, the pastor and the, and the way they're making the tortillas. And, and, you know, not that, not that I should expect anything less from, from Grant Cooper, because certainly Copa and Gratify are, are very thoughtful concepts but i was just very impressed this this was this is not some slapdash you know tex-mex knockoff this is this is like a this is a real restaurant with serious food well right i i mean you know a couple things is it's early so you know leaving there uh my thoughts were i definitely want to come back Uh, i'd probably like to wait a little bit and, and see how the food progresses. What were some of your favorite dishes? What did, what do you, what stand out for you? What stood out for you? You know, actually those uh, green enchiladas with the, uh, 
with the chicken that that were something that that Joseph grew up eating at, at Sanborns. Uh, I just thought the simplicity of that dish and the flavors really delivered. Really, really enjoyed that dish. I agree with you. And, you know, another one for me was the lamb barbacoa. I just thought the lamb was really, was really rich, really, you know, the flavors were really deep. It, it, it had obviously been slow cooked. You know, like I said, that mole on the short rib, I thought was, was really flavorful. Um, I don't know. Anything else, anything else that you want to kind of give a shout out to? Well, I, it is a big menu. Um, I think the, the thing, the play is to go in with a little bit of a group and, you know, order, you can order the barbacoa in a half pound. You can try several different things. Um, I did like the pastor, the, particularly the, uh, what they're calling the black pastor, which is basically cooked in ashes. You know, those were nice. They were street style. So the, the tortillas are a little bit smaller. I did enjoy our visit quite a bit. I was impressed with all the things that they were doing. Um, I still think the flavors and textures are a work in progress. So I look forward to going back. And as much as we tried, there's still some things on there that we didn't. Uh, yeah, there's a whole there's a whole group of seafood dishes that we didn't try. Yes. There's, a, yep. there's a roasted fish that's kind of meant to be shared that we didn't we didn't get the chance to uh, to sample and and. I mean, frankly, we didn't get the we didn't get the fajitas just because I I thought so much of the other the menu was was more compelling. But you know, certainly that's a very popular dish, and I I'd, I'd be curious to sample their take on it. And you know what else was another like sneaky little sleeper hit was those mushrooms al ajillo roasted in garlic. They were very tasty. Yes, they were. Yeah, I, I um, congratulations to them i think they're off to a good start but a little little tbd for me and and but i am excited to go back no i i agree with you i'm i'm looking forward to my next meal there and you know i've i've seen it sort of popping up on social media it, it seems like they it's already drawing crowds as you would sort of expect for someone with a following like grant cooper yes agreed matt i'm going to say that does it for the restaurant of the week thank you very much thank you daddy all right, and I'll be right back with Nikki Vongfon. I am joined this week by the executive chef of Hidden Omakase, Nikki Vongfon. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Eric. How's it going? I'm well, thank you. I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. I always like to kind of start at the beginning of a person's career. And you, you grew up in a restaurant family. So could you just talk a little bit about that and kind of what it was like growing up in the world of restaurants? It wasn't necessarily a restaurant. It started off as a grocery store. Um, so back in 1983, I believe, uh, my parents opened a, a Thai Lao's grocery store off of North Main up until 1990. And then we moved to the Calvacade location until 2010. Um, so when we, we, the store, we should my, say, I mean, this is, this is Asia market. This is like a very yes. celebrated. Yes, it's one of like the oldest Asian markets in town in Houston, I guess. Right. Um, we started as a grocery store. We, we didn't sell any food yet, you know, until 
like probably um, during the cavalcade location because, you know, my parents were cooking food and would have customers that would come in. They're like, hey, where are you cooking? So we would feed them, of course. Um, that's like our culture. You know, whenever people come by, it's like, hey, do you eat? So we'll just feed them. And then, of course, we started doing that more and more. I say, hey, you know, we should like start charging people. We can't do this all the time. So that's how like the restaurant side um you know happened um so we were selling food to customers during that time and we had like maybe two tables or something we didn't we didn't have we had like like less than 10 items on the menu as well um so it was it wasn't like a full restaurant you know right but it it did kind of evolve it did kind of earn that you know hidden gem status right as like kind of a chef's favorite right it, it it developed some popularity in the in the culinary community well honestly it didn't to me it didn't become famous until after we sold it <laughs> i think Cause, okay um when people finally heard about it you know my friends were like why'd you sell it you know it's so famous now i was like well you know i didn't want to continue it you know because i did that for too long already so I, I i guess i didn't i didn't fully understand this part of the story when did you sell it we sold it in 2010. And then what did you do after your family sold the business? Uh, I wanted to learn more cooking. So I went to uh, culinary school off of Costumbers, Todd Notes, that French oh, culinary yeah. school. Okay. okay. Yeah, I was there about for about a year and a half. And then, then I started my first professional kitchen job at Straits in City Center. It was like a Malaysian Singaporean restaurant. Do you remember that at City Center? Yeah. I do. Yes. Yeah. What was, what was that like for you kind of having grown up around, you know, this grocery store and, and a little bit of a restaurant making the, making the transition to professional cooking? Well, it wasn't that hard for me because, you know, Malaysian and Singaporean food is similar to our food as well. So it was um, easy for me in that sense, but I only, I only worked there for like the first three months and then I left to Spain for an externship for like three months after and that was my first time traveling out of the country so it's very eye-opening and and cool (laughs) what did you learn in Spain what what do you have like a memory of a particular dish that you discover that that sticks with you now well after working at Straits um I wanted to travel afar to learn more stuff you know I was uh googling um, where I can extern. So I found this golf resort hotel um, in Andalusia. And what do you know, the executive chef there was from Laos. And I was like, oh, you know, we have connection, whatever. So, um, but he didn't, he grew up in, he grew up in London and he spoke, he, he lived in Spain. He spoke, spoke fluent Spanish and a little bit of Laos, but because he was from Laos, you know, um, I was able to connect with him in that way. And then I, um, when I went there, um, I, I mean, they were, we were opening, we were only open for three days. No, I'm sorry. They're opening only for dinner. And I didn't work as hard as in the States because, you know, it was only dinner service and it, was, it wasn't that busy. They only had like maybe 20 to 50 covers a night. So, and I had like three or four days off. So I didn't work as hard as I did in the States, but it was fun. Um, I get to travel during those days off. Um, you know, I learned some Spanish cuisine. All right. So did you come back to America after you spent three months in Spain? 
I did. I actually came back to the Straits for another, was it three to six months maybe? And then Uchi opened up back in 2012. And I was one of the openers for Uchi as well and stayed there for like almost six years. Okay, good. Yeah, I wanted to get to Uchi because I think that's where I first kind of heard about you or, or maybe even met you. You grew up kind of with a Thai background. What was it like kind of moving into a, a Japanese environment and what did you learn at Uchi? I've always loved Japanese food. I, you know, um, my first memory of eating Japanese sushi was from Miyako's off Kirby um, and Japan around that area, same area. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to, it was like the traditional traditional sushi, you know, but then when I went to Austin to eat at Uchi over there, that's what blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, this is like a different kind of sushi. It's more modern. And they like use, you know, other ingredients with fish as well, like fruits and chips or whatever. So I thought that was interesting to me. And then I was like, oh, I want to work here, you know? And then next thing you know, they opened in Houston. So I was super excited. Went to apply and got the job. And then I remember my first day there, um, I was looking at the pantry and they had like fish sauce and, you know, some Thai ingredients. I'm like, what? You know, they use Thai ingredients as well, you know? So I thought that was cool. I, I can relate to that, you know? So it got me more excited. Um, yeah, Uchi was, it taught me a lot. It was very, very tough. Well, let me just ask you, did you work on the hot side or did you work on the sushi side? I started on the hot side. I started, I actually started on the grill um, and I did really well. Um, I worked on the hot side for about three years and then I wanted to do sushi and they let me do get on the sushi side which was also, you know, I'm grateful for that too, because you don't see many female sushi chefs being in, you know, doing sushi in that time, you know? And um, yeah, I learned a lot from, from the sushi guys as well. It's good to know like the backside and the front side, the, the sushi side. Yeah. I mean, Uchi has kind of an unusual approach to sushi. I mean, like, were you sort of comparing it to more traditional Japanese restaurants? I mean, were you, were you eating like traditional sushi and kind of comparing what you were experiencing versus what you were learning at, at Uchi? I like Uchi for the fact that, it, you know, you can get creative. You can, um, it's, you can like add more to the traditional stuff, you know? Um, of course, Uchi is not your traditional sushi. It's more modern. And that's what I liked about it. I can uh, create and just do more with it. I mean, Uchi's kind of known for letting the chefs like put a special up on the menu. Do you, do you remember the first dish you got You got on the menu? Gosh, it's so long ago, and I have a bad memory. Um, but that's what I also like about Uchi as well. You get to create dish, and, you know, um, the chefs would taste it, and if it, it does well, then it gets on the menu. You know, not a lot of restaurants can do that. It's really more on the chef's side doing all the, the dishes. But at Uchi, you, you, anyone can come up with a dish and put on the menu if, it, if it's good, you know? But yeah, for now I can't. I don't remember exactly what I put on. It's so long ago. Well, let me let me ask you one other thing because one of my one of my first sort of professional encounters with Uchi was witnessing their they had a, a chopped style uh, competition for their chefs. I think they called it eighty sixth, where like the the sous chef or the exec chef would go to a grocery store and buy a bunch of mystery ingredients and then 
the the junior cooks would have to make a dish. Oh yeah, they did have a chop competition. Did you ever did you ever participate in that? I did and I lost. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what was in your box? Yeah, and I think that box was kind of made for you for me, but I got so nervous. Like I yeah, I got so nervous I, I froze and I didn't know what I was doing. So I yeah, just ended up losing. It was like a like a high ingredient too, which is makes me really feel really embarrassed about that. <laughs> I think it had like peanuts or shrimp or something. Yeah, super easy now that I think about it. But yeah, I lost. All right. So you spent you spent six years at Uchi. When did you when did you sign on to a key? Um about 2018. Aki was looking for a sous chef. Uh, chef Gabe was the executive chef. And they had asked me, so I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Because, you know, I like to um, learn new stuff and do something more challenging. So that's why I decided to leave Uchi and go to Aki. And I like Chef Aki. I mean, that's like one of the great what-if restaurants of, of Houston because the food was so exceptional. And we... I mean, to this day, I would say we haven't seen like creative Filipino cuisine on that, on that level in Houston. Mm -hmm. What was it? I mean, but that was a super talented team with you and Gabe and Jill and, and everybody else. What what was it like working there? First of all, the restaurant was beautiful. That was like one of the best kitchens I've ever worked at. Everything was brand new. Um, They had a fire charcoal oven that I really loved. I think what happened with Ikea was, you know, people were saying that there's not really an identity with the restaurant because it was really mine and Gabe's menu. So I was, we had like Thai and Filipino stuff, you know, and people were like, was it Asian or is it Filipino or whatever, you know? Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, Chef Gabe and um, Chef Jill was really awesome. We had a good team. I only worked there for a year and it was doing, it was doing good in the beginning. Um, but after that, I left to Thailand to go open something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was I was coming to that. What was what what made you go to Thailand, and what did you do there? Because that that seems like a pretty important uh, moment in your career. Yeah, no one really knew I left to Thailand. Um, I had an offer to go to Thailand for a year, it was a year contract to go open an omakase. I actually left with one of the executive chefs from Uchi at that time. And um, there was this uh, Thai owner, like a super rich Thai owner. He, he wanted to open an omakase um, and wanted to hire two American chefs. So his friend knew um, the executive chef that was going there and he had asked me if I wanted, if I wanted to go to, I was like, sure, why not? You you know, it's like a new opportunity. So I took that chance and just left. Um, that was a really cool experience. You know, I haven't lived anywhere out of the country for that long of a time. And we stayed in an expat area. Um, the owner loved to go fishing. So he would take us out to Phuket to like deep sea fish and, you know, fish our own fish and bring it back to the restaurant and put on the menu, which was really fun. Um, yeah, I, I took some pictures of the fish too. It's on Instagram. You guys want to see it? <laughs> but it's really cool. It's like same fish that we we order in Japan, you know. But it's it's it was from Phuket, Thailand. I mean, was that your first time kind of leading your own kitchen? Well, he was the head chef there. Um, 
I was his too, but he left six months later. And then I took over afterwards. So that's my first time being head for an omakase or a restaurant period, you know? When you say omakase, was it like a pure sushi experience or was it like a, what did you serve? I mean, cause it, it wasn't, was it Japanese or was it a Thai restaurant? It was a Japanese omakase, but like using, we use both Thai and Japanese fish. It was a 10 seat and they're open from Friday, Saturday, Sunday only. So it's kind of something what I'm doing right now, but we're open four days, you know, but that was my first experience of actually opening an omakase, like Japanese style restaurant, but using Thai ingredients as well. Right. I mean, you'd been, you'd been working in, in much larger uh, restaurants. Did you enjoy like the more intimate personal aspect of a, of an omakase restaurant? I do because I, I love uh, this style of dining. I love, um, I love bites. I love snacks. I love, you know, tapas style when I went to Spain. Um, just small bites of food to so like eat more of it, you know? That's what I like. <laughs> right. And I like serving it too because it's about that perfect bite and I like to create that perfect bite, which I learned from Uchi about creating that per- perfect bite. I guess talk about that a little bit more because that's a good way to kind of transition to what you're doing at, at Hidden. You know, when you're you're crafting these multi-course progressions, how do you think about each course and, and how do you, like, how do you refine dishes? Because you, because they kind of have to tell a story, right? Like, they kind of have to make sense together. So my first omakase experience was at Uchi when I was working at the sushi bar. You know, we'd have guests come over and they wouldn't know what to order. And some people just like, you know, what the chefs would order, you know? So... When I have those guests, you know, um, I would create a, I mean, an omakase for them from the Uchi's menu. But it's kind of like what I'm doing here at Hidden as well. I'm creating menu, but I'm actually making that menu, you know? So it's like, I, ever since Uchi, I always start, like, um, starting lighter courses, you know? And then progressing towards, like, heavier, and then towards the end with, like, a dessert. And that's, that's kind of my format right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I I feel like there's kind of a standard progression of these things, right? You get your, your kind of lighter fish, and then inevitably you get sort of the, the different cuts of tuna, and then maybe a bite of Wagyu. How do you kind of put your spin on that stuff so that it stands out from all of the, the other restaurants that are also serving kind of that, that are riffing on those same ideas? So... When I came back from Thailand, the pandemic hit, right? I was doing pop-ups. Like I've been doing pop-ups for a long time, serving noodles, Thai street foods. That was my initial um, goal was like to open a noodle shop with, stri- with Thai street food. And then when I did the omakase, I, like I love omakase as well. I love sushi. So I was like, I do want to open this, but I want to do this too, you know? So how do I incorporate the two together? Right. So then luckily when I got to hidden, I can, I can incorporate both, you know, I can do sushi and add my, my culture food to the menu as well. Like Thai street food, Isan food, you know, and that's what I'm kind of doing slowly, but surely. So yeah, that's like the best of both both worlds to me because I love both. Well, I I will say, I mean, I was super excited because I, I had dinner at hidden 
pretty recently, and I, I saw that you put duck larb on the menu. Yeah. I mean, that's just like a, a straight up Thai dish, right? Like that's not a, that's not a Japanese dish. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> but, but I, I guess that's kind of what I'm asking you about is, is, you know, how do you, like, how are you incorporating those more Thai elements, you know, now that you've been at Hidden for, I mean, for a while now, over, over a year, right? I mean, how are you, how are you sort of blending like that traditional Japanese progression with your own Thai. Well, thai like um, like with my soups, my noodle soups, um, I like to add dashi in my broth as well. You know, I, with every Thai dish that I that I know, um, I try to add some type of Japanese ingredient that you know would m- make it different or taste better. You know, um, so that's what I do, slowly but surely. Yeah. Well, and the, the other thing I want to ask you about is, you know, the, I think the first time I went to Hidden, you know, you kind of let your, your cooks do most of the talking. And then the last time you were very much like the master of ceremonies, kind of leading people into the individual courses. I mean, do you, do you feel more confident now, like that you've got some experience? Yes, definitely. Um, I do. And, and, and I'm used to it. You know, I, I like to talk to my guests. Um, I like to tell them about my dish. I like to talk to them afterwards, you know, get feedback and what their experience, how their experience was, you know, during the night. What kind of feedback are you getting? What do people tell you? Um, They tell me that this was the best experience. Um, I mean, it's all, it's all different. You know, I I would have, I don't have all positive feedback too, (laughs) but most of them, um, they said, you know, this is the best meal I've ever had or best experience. They want to come back, but I've also had, um, you know, they're, they're very short. They don't want to be rude. So they're like, Oh, it's good. It was good. So I'm like, okay, you know, can't really say much, but, um, and then you don't hear about, about until they write the bad reviews, which is funny. Well, it, it, it's an interesting restaurant, right? Because it, it's, it's small. It's hard to book. It's, you know, financially it's, it's not inexpensive, and and I like that you sort of ask people at the very beginning, like, is anybody celebrating a birthday or an anniversary or whatever? Because inevitably, you know, it's like half the room or maybe even more. Does that make you excited knowing that you're you're hosting these people on these special occasions, or is it like a lot of pressure because it's like don't you know don't screw it up? No, I I mean I'm glad that they're they want to celebrate special occasions at Hidden. Um, we recently have had a proposal not too long ago like last two weeks and that was sweet and exciting because um you know you can tell that he was kind of nervous and towards the end he did whatever and we were there for him and we experienced it and he left us a message after that. he's like oh my gosh I had such a great time thank you guys you know what I mean that's it's it's a it's nice to hear that and to be a part of that as well did he tell you in advance he was going to do it he didn't he didn't like uh surprise you with it did he Oh no, he told us. <laughs> no, he told us we were ready for him. We, you know, we gave him um, some flowers and like a champagne, just to yeah, help him out. I mean, not help him out, just you know, or like graduate congratulating. <laughs> right. Yeah. You you plan you plan for her to say yes, right? You 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 don't plan for the other thing. I hope so. <laughs> of course we did. Gosh, can you imagine if she said no? Yeah, you can't you can't ask that question if you don't know what the answer is. 
No, it was really sweet. That's actually my first time witnessing like a proposal. So that was nice. And it's it's good to be a part of that, you know. And we, we do have a lot of birthdays, celebration, anniversaries and and you know, it's it's good to hear that they enjoy the experience af- afterwards, after the fact. Yeah. So just thinking about the menu and and how would you say it's evolved over the, the year plus that you've been there? Like what what's what are you doing now that you didn't do in the beginning? So I'm adding, well, I'm always uh, trying to source fish that I've never had before or seen. Like I like, you know, experimenting new stuff, new proteins. Um, so I would, I would ask my vendor all the time, you have anything different, you know, something. And, you know, there's a lot out there. So I'm like slowly bringing it in. And because when cause people come in, they're like, wow, I never heard this fish. I never heard that, you know, and that's a, um, good experience as well when when you know you've I like people trying something that they've never had before and that's that's part of coming to hidden you know because just to be open-minded and trying something new um and they say that you know a lot of restaurants sushi restaurants don't don't serve this type of fish or whatever and I like that too and I'm also adding more of my culture food the food I grew up with um as well more than last time um my mom made like a lot of Thai desserts when she, when we had the store. So um, I'm kind of using her recipes, but kind of make tweaking it to my own too. Like the dessert you had just recently, um, it's a traditional steamed pumpkin with custard, but I, you know, did my own take on it. Um, so that's, I'm going to do more of that as well. Well, yeah. Explain, explain to people who haven't had it, what that dessert is and, and, and how it's different than the traditional Thai version. So the traditional Thai dessert, it's like a whole steamed pumpkin. You steam the whole pumpkin. Well, you, you cut it, take these out, and you pour the uh, custard inside, and you steam it. But I do the custard separately, and then I, I steam the the whole pumpkin halfway, so it's easier to cut. And then I take the seeds out, and then you know slice it, and then I fry it like it's a tempura frying, like you know your traditional tempura pumpkin. And then um. I season it, add a little bit of togarashi, and serve it with the custard on the side, and then a house-made vanilla ice cream. And and also, I added passion fruit curd on the pumpkin. So when I serve it, I tell people to eat everything in one bite, like you know, a piece of the pumpkin with the custard, the passion fruit, and the vanilla ice cream. So it's like that, again, back to that perfect bite, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you mentioned that you had been doing uh, noodle pop-ups before you, you, both before you went overseas and, and then even before you, you signed on to Hidden. Do you think, what, what does the future hold for you? I mean, would you like to be able to do, to do both? I mean, continue with Hidden and also have a noodle restaurant? Maybe because I love doing noodles, um, doing soups. It's, I find it very therapeutic for me. You know, you have to have a lot of patience, you know, just waiting and skimming that fat off the broth. And um, yeah, just like cooking noodles. I mean, I can still serve it now. Of course, I'm, I'm already doing that at Hidden, but who knows? It's on hold for right now, maybe in the future. Yeah, I mean, the the noodle soup, uh, I mean, the noodle soups you're doing at Hidden don't have the, like, the funk of like Thai boat noodles, right? Like it's, it's a, it's not as, uh, it's not quite as kick you in the teeth no. with, with flavor because it, it wouldn't make sense. No, it's, I, I'm starting out with a lighter version. <laughs> yeah. 
Have you had the boat noodles that I've made I back then? I don't, you know, I don't remember. I, I mean, I, I remember you doing like pop-ups at Wooster's and some other places. And I, I honestly, I don't remember if I made it to one or not. Probably not. <laughs> Cause I don't remember either. Yeah. I, I might bring the boat noodles back to hidden. I mean, yeah. One day. Just trying to do different versions of noodles for now. I mean, what, what's your goal? Um, you know, like I said, you, you've been at hidden for a little while now. What, it, what's your, uh, what are your goals? Like, how would you like to see it, it grow? I just want to keep continuing doing what I love, um, sushi and Thai food. I mean, Isan food, Thai Lao food. Um, that's a for now thing. I mean, I don't know about the future <laughs> yet. Well, Nikki, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Nikki Vong Thong, what is your favorite ingredient? Um, garlic salt. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? The Pesha Mode in Afterworld. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive through Back in the box tacos. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Hakeem mm, Olajuwon. It's a it's a very solid answer. All right, and then finally, what is the recently opened Houston restaurant that you haven't been to yet but are dying to try? You, I'm so out of the loop. I don't even know what's open now. Um, actually, Chivo's. Is it Chivo's? Yeah, Chivo's. I haven't been there. It's a good answer. I still want to go there. All right. Uh, give me the website and everything for Hidden and the social media for Hidden Omakase. So it's hiddenomakase.com or you can follow me too at Nick, N-I-K underscore V as in Victor, 7-3 on Instagram. All right. Nikki Vongthong, thank you very much. Thank you. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.